It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today is April 1st, but I'm not going to do an uh, an April Fool's joke on you. At least I hope not. Um, the last time uh, my guest, Dr. Rodalie Weininger, was here, something very strange happened. And um, the sound cut out. She could hear me. I could not hear her. And we were so deep in the middle of a great discussion. <clears throat> so I have brought her back, and we are planning on a really, really great show today. Um, Dr. Weininger is a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, meditation teacher, and also a Psychology Today contributor. And today, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about her book, Heart Medicine, How to Stop Painful Patterns and Find Peace and freedom at last. So let me um, unmute. Okay. Okay. And um, we're going to get started now. We have a lot to talk about. Good morning, Rodalie. Good morning, Randy. Thank you so much for bringing me back. Oh, my gosh. It's my pleasure. I was devastated by what happened last time, but we can't help it. These um, electronic glitches, they do happen. So... Um, Like I said, we're going to talk about your book, Heart Medicine, but I wanted to uh, start with you sharing your personal traumatic history because it really has a lot to do with the work that you're doing now, right? Yeah, I think it's the inspiration for that. Okay, so... Um, I know that your childhood was quite unusual and um, and difficult. So would you mind sharing that with us? Sure. Uh, maybe I should say what the backdrop is. The backdrop is post-war Germany, 1957. And, you know, my family, they were refugees from, the, from Pol- what's Poland now, and my grandfather, who taught history, was prosecuted by the Nazis. And my mother, a young medical student, had to be really careful, you know, because uh, there was a lot of house searches and suppression and all of that. And, and it took them a while to get resettled after the war. My mom lost her fiancé in the war. And uh, then 1957, she had me out of wedlock as a young doctor. And um, and her family was very Catholic. When they were refugees, they were Catholic, they were afraid. So she hid me from her family and the world for two years in an orphanage just to then or children's home slash orphanage just to uh, then present me to her family as an adopted child, which I guess was more face-saving at age, around age two, which put me on a very strange footing with this family uh, because, I don't know, there was just a great mystery around where I was coming from. And uh, different family members knew different things. And even with me, my mom told different stories to tell to people who my father was, you know, or where I came from. It wasn't consistent. So I think as a child, I felt this thing between uh, confusion and shame and some fear, just kind of an awkwardness. And um, and so I think that 
followed me through my childhood. On the one hand, I think I do think my mom loved me, but she was super busy. Man, she worked 15 hours a day, and at first, all the time, worked overnight, and you know, so there was very little time. And um, yeah, so I was kind of a stressed child. You know, I was a stressed child. Later, she had a boyfriend from when I was seven on who was married, and that was another shameful thing in the family and really quite awkward in Germany then. It wasn't California. And um, and so I, then I was in this, yeah? Now, I, I was going to say, I think you told us last time that your mother's boyfriend was narcissistic. He was, yeah. You know, I remember when I studied about narcissism in uh, graduate school when I wrote a paper about him and he hit 10 out of 10. He was very, he was a doctor too. He was very grandiose. Um, He was mainly about himself, uh, kind of flamboyant um, and dismissive just like narcissists are. And my my mom very much kind of, I don't know, became small around him, which women often do. You know, women of narcissists, they get kind of flattered by the grandiosity, but then um, become small on their side. Right. Or maybe the the flower on their side, depending what, but kind of cater to them, right? To this kind of Trump-like figure, and then, uh, and so I think she also didn't adequately protect me. You know, when he was a bully or when he was unreasonable or whatever, when he felt I was in the way. Um, Sometimes he was a bit seductive. He didn't abuse me, but he definitely was seductive. Again, very confusing for a budding teenager. Actually, he was there for 34 years, believe it or not. They stayed together until he died. Never got divorced. Uh, it's very more like a French situation, you might say. <laughs> My mom knew his wife in the end, and they would all go out for dinner. It was kind oh my of gosh. rather weird in a European way, you know, kind of. Mm. Uh, I think it's more unusual here than it is over there. And, uh, yeah, I got uh, it. I think so, too. Yeah, it's more serious. Me. <laughs> so you suffered from, as we say now, attachment issues um, because really you didn't bond with your mom for two years. Mm-hmm. And then I had a nanny I got very attached to when I was two for two years. But then we moved from southern Germany to middle Germany, closer to my aunt, and my nanny wasn't allowed to come. And that was another huge disaster because I had then really attached to her. So I guess, yeah, attachment issues were definitely um, definitely there. And then um, um, your mom put you in a Catholic boarding school? Mm-hmm. From 11 to 14 or 15 which was kind of a dark time. These nuns were fairly grumpy, and I don't think they liked their job. <laughs> and um, and then later I would drive to the school. Uh, it wasn't that far away. I think it was like an hour and a half by bus. It was a long bus ride. And later wow. I had a car. But, um, yeah, and... Um, and then you were yeah that's what you were saying you said last time that um, the families of the boy your boyfriends and girlfriends 
are really who saved you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a boyfriend from when I was 15 to 18, and basically I got adopted there. And so I think the families of my uh, boyfriends were always very nice to me. And I, you know, I mm-hmm. I actually, as a therapist sometimes, you know, with, with teenagers, I look at them and I say, well, either we can save your family or we can just <laughs> tell you to save yourself. You know, yes. my, there there are some where you can salvage it, and sometimes, and then, and then I say to myself, smart teenagers whose families can't get put together, get themselves adopted, <laughs> you know, inofficially by friends, mm-hmm. neighbors. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully they do, hopefully, yeah. So then yeah. you... You took your um, your boyfriend and you dragged him to Sri Lanka to a Buddhist mon- monastery. Is that the same boyfriend? Uh, no, um, that was a few boyfriends later. <laughs> um, I went then to, I actually got, believe it or not, into medical school. I don't know how I did, I think desperation. I came out of, from this kind of medical family and to be halfway human, you had to <laughs> do this ordeal <laughs> and so I um, I did get into medical school even though I really didn't like science to so believe that but I had a good memory so um, I had a boyfriend who was kind of a hippie he was also in medical school he had hair down to his butt hands he's still good friends he's now a, a kind of physician but he does acupuncture in Germany he's very cool and so Hans and I went to Sri Lanka and uh, first studying acupuncture which he he liked and then I kind of found this old monk who um, I somehow mysteriously met she's the head monk of Sri Lanka then but he was very old and actually died soon after, and he gave me my first meditation lesson. And he just had this energy, which was just uh, something else, you know, like sitting in his presence. Was, it wasn't about what he said or what he taught. It was like being in the field of this, of this very ancient monk, and then, uh, and then I dragged Hans into a, um, a monastery where we did, you know, a few months of very disciplined sitting practice. And then our visa went out, and we went to India. But um, uh, that I really took to that. You know, I think having an inner resource. I remember when I first started meditating, I didn't know what there was. You know, I was a European young existentialist kind of, you know, maybe it's all chaos and there is nothing, <laughs> you know. I was like an atheist existentialist. And and so I, I honestly didn't know what would happen. And I was so surprised as I was sitting and sitting and sitting how I would become more and more peaceful. And uh, that there was actually um, a sacred ground underneath, you might say. And um, so that was really... My this whole trip with Hans in India, seven months, was just really an amazing experience. And uh, your family, and your family, to... your family thought that this was dangerous, right? They 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 didn't approve because this was so different from what they knew. Yeah, they thought I was in a cult and this was dangerous. And I remember I had worked before as a night nurse to scratch to gather the money, you know, I, I just really did all kinds of jobs 
uh, to because they wouldn't pay for this, you know. So I uh, worked as a night nurse. I worked on a what we would might call now a hospice ward. I did all kinds of work to, you know, get the money together to do that. And it was very cheap. Mine, we lived so cheap. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ten rupees that, a day. <laughs> what is that? What is that equivalent to here in the, I, in the U.S.? I don't know. Maybe. I, but it's very. It was 1980, so it's very little. Maybe it would be 50 cents a dollar. <laughs> no way. That's incredible. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah. then you decided wanted a 6,000-mile buffer zone, and you came to America, right? On my second India trip, I wasn't with Hans anymore at that point. Uh, on my second, in, well, in the end of our first India trip, Hans wanted to go to this Hindu ashram in the Himalayas. And we had this deal. He would come with me to the Buddhist thing only if I would come with him to the Hindu thing. And so I did, which actually was kind of an amazing experience. It was this very intense Shiva ashram in the middle of nowhere, close to the Nepalese border. And it's very different from a a Buddhist monastery, but in its own way also kind of very cool. And um, a, a very different kind of spirituality. I kept meditating, but I also did what they did there. So it's much more, you might say, uh, not apophatic, like emptying out. It's more cataphatic, which means there are rituals and songs and work. And, you know, it's much more lively and very colorful and intense. So in some ways, that was good for me, too, you know, as a kind of a balance. And, uh, yeah, and then I came back to medical school. Oh, yeah, and then on my second India trip, I went back to this ashram. uh, But then I traveled in India for a while, and I met this American man because of whom I came actually to America. And I didn't stay with him. His name was Barry. But um, uh, it it basically, uh, just after I finished medical school, I finished it in Germany. I graduated. I came to the States. And I think these were the 6,000 miles different that I probably needed when I didn't know that I needed them, you know, but... I came to California. She did part of my German internship in Los Angeles in a hospital. And then we ended up in Santa Barbara. And uh, this relationship didn't last. It actually wasn't a very, very good relationship. But I guess it got me here. And um, then I met my uh, son, Ruben, who was still good friends. They're not married anymore. But he's a psychiatrist here, and uh, I got to know his father, who was a famous old psychiatrist who was very close with Krishna Modi and very Buddhist. His family was very Buddhist. So I felt like welcomed in a family that was really accepting me. They thought me going to India and doing all that was actually really cool, you know, California, <laughs> right? And yeah. and so and then I decided not to stay with medicine, but to get my PhD in psychology, which was a great decision. I never regretted that. And um, and so you were also you also continued to teach meditation. Well, you know, I was so young. I was in my uh, 27 or so. Um, When I first came, yeah, I taught meditation. I didn't really mean to, but it ended up like that. So I 
I taught, and then people would come, like all kinds of people would come into my living room in the evening. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's some. I didn't even plan it, you know, and I did something which I don't know if it's still around. It's called rebirthing or grass breathing. It's kind well, I'm of. Not, a, I'm not familiar with it. No, I mean I've heard rebirthing, but a, I do. I would have a, no idea what that is. It's a cathartic kind of body breathing method, which is actually amazing with trauma. Man, I did also do a lot of therapy. I probably did thirty years of therapy, but this uh, cathartic breathing. Uh, practice was very much I don't know if I I don't do it anymore but it was then because it didn't go into the you know with therapy and I did oh I did so much therapy but um, uh, it got me out of my head and really into the body in a in a very cathartic way and uh, that was really important, you know, because I, I was just holding so much from my family. And, um, and you know. I'll bet, uh, you. I'll bet you were. Yeah. I'll bet you had a lot to work through. Yeah, I, I got myself into therapy during the end of medical school which was, again, not really supported by my family because they just didn't know about it. You know, it wasn't scientific. and But I <laughs> knew I needed it. And, you know, I had in the <clears throat> end of medical school, before I left to India, I don't know if I told you, I had these two big car accidents that gave me basically the big pause. And uh, six weeks in the hospital. And so... Uh, then I I took some time off from medical school and basically I realized either I change my life, really work on myself, or I may not make it, you know. And so that was like a real wake-up call, you might say, for me, where I decided I will do work on myself, meditation and therapy until... I don't know, the moon turns green and <laughs> and I don't want to give what is it I have to my children, you know. So I, I really made a vow to myself. And uh, I kept it so far. What a I bet a lot of the people you talk to with narcissism, you know, it's a lifelong uh, commitment uh, no? of healing. Um, in many cases it is, although the, those who work with me heal very quickly. Um, I don't know what it oh, is, right. but, but I'm able to, to cut through and really work on that pretty quickly. So I want to get, uh, go into your book, Heart Medicine. And yeah. You start, um, you talk about your, in your book, how you came up with this LERP thing, LERP's longstanding recurring painful patterns. Um, yeah. It, it sort of came out of, out of the blue. I think a professor or something asked you or somebody asked you. Uh, how did, no, how did was, you come up uh, with uh, Yeah, it was Jack Cornfield, my, my mentor. Oh, wow. Jack Cornfield, yes. And, uh, you know, for the last 20 years, he has been mentoring and, you know, supervising my meditation teaching and all. And um, we talked about these, what Jung called complexes, these old patterns, these wounds, and uh, how to work with them in a psychological and spiritual way. And um, and so for a long time we talked about this, and he said, find a new word. And then I said, long-standing, recurrent, painful pattern. He said, that's too long. And then I said, well, how about LERP? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and it seems my students and clients really took to that because it's like an 
onomatopoeia, you know, it sounds as it feels, you get lurped, <laughs> you get slimed, you get, you know. And so people uh, use that quite often. And so that's why I kept the lurp. So, but it was Jack who really, um, who you might know, he's a psychologist, but also quite a famous meditation teacher. He teaches yes. with Tara Brach. And I've heard so, his name, yes. Yeah, so he really encouraged me to write about this and, you know, what all I learned. And I was frustrated because I felt for these long-standing patterns, which are often connected to narcissism in some ways. There's some narcissistic parents there. Um, uh, they are, they come again and again. You know, it's like there are these patterns of abandonment or shame or guilt or competition yeah. or uh, uh, right. angry acting out. They're like deja vus. You know, here, why am I in this again in a different situation? And and it feels that uh, often um, psychotherapy, uh, I just wasn't, you know, like the psychodynamic making unconscious conscious. Yes, you become very conscious, but how do you deal, work with the process of it? And uh, And then I felt some of the cognitive behavioral things just didn't go deep enough. <clears throat> and the mindfulness things with the moment by moment you have to go deeper than moment by moment so I felt I wanted to give it a try and I I hope this is the beginning of a conversation I don't by any means mean that I've found the end all solution but um, that we need to draw from the spiritual and the psychological I agree from you know, we have to to bring it all together to deal with these buggers. And we have to see how they can become a doorway. They can become a doorway to compassion and wisdom. Yes. Um, you know, I so agree. It's, it's interesting. I was thinking um, as you were talking, I was just talking to a client of mine this morning who had just a really difficult, difficult childhood with, you know, no support, no total emotional abandonment. But uh, what he had noticed is this whole thing with Will Smith and and his way of acting out um, the other night at the Academy Awards. He said, when I saw him, I saw myself. He said, he was not present during that time. Mm -hmm. This was a rage that was coming up. That he was, it was completely beyond um, his comprehension. And I think that's one of the things, you know, you talk about with narcissistic abuse, uh, especially childhood narcissistic abuse, is that um, we carry these things in our bodies, in our minds. And I find that they often don't erupt until our 40s or 50s. That's generally when I see people coming in um, and beginning mm-hmm. and, and reaching the point where they say, I just, I don't know why, but all of a sudden I can't take it anymore. So I so agree, you know, with everything that you said. And last time we were talking about uh, the, you know, why some people, well, we were talking about it going through the, the genes, the genetic component yeah. to how um, these pain bodies and, um, traumas uh, pass on from time, from you know from uh, generation to generation, and then you know uh, you were saying that we come into this world, I think, with uh, an instinct or a strong determination. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. What your thoughts were on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to loop back one second. You said that people often come in their 40s and 50s. Yes. And um, I don't think it's that it doesn't erupt before. 
I think it, it does erupt now and then before. Uh, just people can kind of power through it. But it seems, and I have noticed that too, and I actually talked a lot about that, that in their 40s, 50s, it seems that the resilience, the skin gets a little thinner, and we can't brush it off anymore as well. Yes. And I think, uh, I, I definitely, I'm so glad you're saying that because I haven't heard anybody else saying this. <laughs> um uh, besides, you know, me thinking it a lot, um, that there is something in the 40s and 50s where this pattern somehow can't be compensated anymore or repressed or bulldozed through or denied anymore. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It makes perfect sense. And, and you're absolutely right. As almost it's yeah you can't um suppress it any longer you can't like you said power through you can no longer power through uh and it's interesting um so i'm really glad to have you validate that because i say that all the time it's incredible i uh when i take clients i always ask for their age yeah yeah that would be so cool um yeah when i i always take yeah I was going to say, I always take, um, I always ask my clients for their ages, um, and then I sort of, I do a, um, an average, you know, and it's incredible. It's usually, you know, lo- beginning, you know, early 40s to maybe late 50s. That's usually when it happens. Yeah, that that they can't, it, it gets to them that they actually look for help, and mm-hmm. uh, I certainly that but you I wanted to come back to what you asked you wanted to know about a sense of strength enough uh, yes why uh, why one child with the why why two children with the same genetic predisposition might mm-hmm. um, navigate this differently why one child may become a narcissist and the other a codependent or 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 you know or something um maybe I want I, I don't know uh, totally the answer, but uh, maybe I want to bring in a tiny bit the uh, spiritual perspective here. When mm-hmm. the Dalai, one of the Dalai Lama's doc, uh, he's an MD, uh, gave a talk here. He's a monk, uh, and he was talking about how the human humans are born, basically. And he said there are three parts according to Tibetan philosophy. There's the egg, the sperm, and then there is uh, a piece of a mind stream that comes in from from somewhere else. And and you know, and the fourth one would probably be the epigenetic whatever is on our genes, you know, transgenerational. Uh, so who knows? There might be more influences. But I do think <clears throat> that, um, uh, you know, there is nature and nurture, and then there are other, um, other variables which maybe we don't know quite yet. I had a very interesting experience during my, you know, I just came now from my, four-week silent retreat uh, at Spirit Walk Meditation Center where everybody was silent for four weeks. And I did uh, some of my more Tibetan Mahamudra Sokchen practices besides mindfulness. But I had at some point this very deep experience where I felt when I was in that crib in the orphanage, you know, because I connect to to awareness not just as moment-by-moment moment mindfulness, but as something that's a priori there that we can tap into, you know, when we know how to. You know, we have to unclog that pathway, but then we can. And uh, there was this little voice like, I was always with you. 
And I remember a psychoanalyst I saw, he wasn't at all spiritual in San Francisco. He was wonderful, Ira Plutinsky. He said, you know, I think you meditated in the crib in the orphanage. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, it's probably more metaphorical, but I do think there is a connection uh, and maybe be... <coughs> <clears throat> Sorry, having these uh, uh, painful early experiences um, uh, makes us more open to what the Tibetans call the fierce quality of awareness. You know, you see that actually quite often that people who were orphaned or abused, they're sometimes more psychic, they're more open. Yes, and but it's in in a good way. And one thing I noticed there is, um, you know, the big new thing is now uh, internal family system therapy. And I, IFS or something, and um, and they very much work with that. I noticed in some retreats with this guy Lock Kelly who teaches uh, awake awareness type mindfulness, you know. Uh, there were all these 90 IFS licensed psychologists and other therapists. And I thought, dang, that's interesting, you know. And I think that's something we overlooked so far in psychology, you know, because we always bracketed out the spiritual, you know, here's the psychological and here's the spiritual. Mm -hmm. And I always knew they needed to be together. And I think if you can connect to this wider perspective, it can have an influence kind of a, um, in a, not a holding container, but it can be um, an invisible non-personal presence yeah you know it's, it's, it's interesting it's interesting Radley, that um you're bringing this up because i have found uh without fail out of the hundreds of um adult children of narcissistic abuse that every single one of them is empathic every single one of them and when they get in touch with that aspect of themselves it very much helps their healing. So what you're saying is absolutely true, and I've seen it over and over and over with my clients. And um, there is a, uh, a spiritual and energetic sensitivity that we develop as children with um, children who go through trauma, you know, a young age. Yeah. So, yes, you're absolutely right. I see it. We are more permeable. Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and you know, I, I had a weird thought, which I don't know how it's not scientific at this point. <coughs> Sorry. And, but it is, um, uh, you know, how we always talk about dissociation in psychology as something bad. Yes. And pathological. And, and it definitely, my no doubt, you know, it's like, yes, it, is, it, it can be a huge problem. But I think, uh, my, at least for little kids, there is something very protective in it. You know, if you have a 300-pound guy on top of you and you're four, you better dissociate. Otherwise, you die of fear, right? You're right, yes. But... Uh, but I think there is also a situation which is harmful is that it's not weak and alert. It takes us away. But there is also a little bit of spirit or weak awareness in it. And I was just thinking, wow, that would be an amazing uh challenge for us psychologists to divvy out or maybe turn what is uh, 
harmful for our lives when we dissociate, when we don't want to, but to connect with the part in that experience that connects us to something greater. What a fascinating concept. Um, and I, I think, that, yeah, <laughs> I just think that, um, I mean, I think dissociation as does um, all maladaptive um, kind of coping mechanisms in childhood works beautifully in childhood. It's just that it becomes a pattern that we take into adulthood and it doesn't work in adulthood the same way. And we have to learn not to do that because dissociating as an adult is not uh, going to help you, um, you know, heal or navigate through the processes of life very well. But I really like that. That's a great concept. Well, but then imagine if you could take during adulthood, uh, yes, teach people to really be here, not dissociate, but also to connect to this greater energy that is the little bit the positive aspect of that. Mm. But okay. do it consciously and uh, consciously and when we want it, you know. Uh, are you? Um, the, are you think, do you think that's the higher self or um, the spiritual guidance? What do you think? I mean, I know you don't know, but, you know, what do you feel it might be? Hmm. Uh, But according to Buddhist philosophy, and not that I'm a card-carrying Buddhist here, but I'm just thinking Mm -hmm. out loud. Um, uh, They say that the whole field of life is aware. And we can drop into that. Okay. And I remember on a long retreat, I asked uh, Jack Cornfield, um, uh, Jack, is the universe personal or impersonal? And he said, hmm, I think it's both. And that was exactly what I was thinking as well. It's like, you know, the particle and the wave in light. Light can be seen as particle and as wave. You know, we we don't know really uh, what the great mystery is. But it seems to be something one can connect into and actually quicker. The Tibetans really are the ones that found a way to connect into that in a very directed way through their pointing out instructions. Uh, in some ways, you connect into that in long meditation retreats just by being silent and concentrated for 10 days or four weeks. But who can do this? You know, this is not terribly practical. So uh, I think there are... Uh, I think many wisdom traditions found ways to connect into that. Unfortunately, often you have to join a club. You know, you have to join a church or something to get to it. And I I would love to find a way to free that, you know, so you don't have to be a whatever to access Mm -hmm. that what is already there. Yes. So, so would that be the impersonal part of the universe? Yeah. Um, yes. Because I, I, I think I the know personal, that... the personal part would be our soul that travels. You know, I would think that that would be the personal yeah. part. Yeah, it could be. I just ah, oh, it might be. There's definitely a personal aspect and an impersonal but I I I just can experience it but it's hard for me to define it you know it would feel like if I want to make it small and defined it becomes a little wrong <laughs> you, you know what I mean mm-hmm. <laughs> yes and and you know I think in in our traditions, whether we are Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Native American or agnostic, it just, it shows itself in different ways. 
Yes, it's a it's <clears throat> it's a really really fascinating um, concept that you know takes quite a bit of uh, pondering, <laughs> I would imagine, and a lot uh, can be done in in the middle of meditation. I would imagine. Um, so yeah, I wanted to. Do, you, um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I was just wondering. Do you remember the movie uh, Contact with Jodie Foster? Yes. When her father, or the image of her father, whatever that is, meets her on the beach, and she says, why did you come to me in the form of my father? And this, whatever it was, this energy said, because that's the way you can understand it. Yes. So I think... It has innumerable forms, whatever it is, and meets people where we can understand, how we can understand. It's compassionate. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I interrupted. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's a really, that's a really good thought. And, um, and I think that's whenever spirit comes to us, if it's a loss of a loved one or whatever it is, come to us in a recognizable form. But we know that spirit is not, a physical form it's energy so yeah so that's a very um oh that's something i think it's important we all understand um i wanted to jump into a couple of things from the book and um one of the things was in uh step six you have uh a 12 let me see steps yeah Okay, so step six in your, I think it's 12 steps that you have. Um, just yeah. briefly explain what the 12 steps are, and then I'll, I'll go into step six. Yeah. So what Hello? are the 12? Yes. Can you hear me? Oh, what are the 12 steps? Yeah. Yes. What are so, the, briefly, briefly, what are the 12 steps? So the <clears throat> first step is recognizing your lurk. You know, just noticing in your body, like, what does it, I feel contracted, I feel achy, my emotions are bigger than they should be, it, it makes me ruminate like crazy. So, noticing when we got lurked. Okay. And then, uh, the second one is basic mindfulness as a methodology to witness, to be with, to notice in a non-judgmental way. And then self-compassion, because often when we realize these old wounds, we can get harsh with ourselves, and we need to see ourselves with a lot of kindness, and, uh, and also kindness for others. You know, it's like I, over the years, when I went through my many years of being mad at my mother for the orphanage thing. But in the end, I was just feeling compassion for her, really, you know. And um, and then uh, what can we do when we get triggered? It's time to pause. And there's a methodology to find this mindful pause. And also to learn to stay with our suffering not in a static way because everything changes all the time, but not to run away and to breathe through. And then um, often there is a lot of need to forgive others and ourselves. And that doesn't mean condoning or whitewashing. It just means at some point we don't want to carry that resentment anymore. But that cannot be forced. And then uh, the really difficult step is the loosening of identification, um, which is just loosening because often there's such a sense of self that develops around the traumatized wounds, you know, and to uh, loosen that a little bit. And then I say letting in the mystery, which is what we just talked about, letting in this vast perspective with which we can hold all that immense suffering. And then service, which is 
so important because it gives us a sense of efficacy, of courage, of connectedness. It decreases fear. So these are the 12 steps. But you wanted to oh, do step six. Well, I wanted to say something really quickly um, about le- loosening up. And, uh, and I'm sure that, you know, that this is something that you know. Um, but it's something I've observed as well is that trauma often becomes uh, people's identity. And they're terrified that if they don't have the trauma, they don't know who they will be. So I think right. that's very, a very important step is the loosening up. Um, the, the sixth one was just basically, I just wanted you to go over quickly because a lot of people have triggers. And just to give them a quick uh, idea of how they can sort of deal with that, uh, the pausing and the breathing through and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So when triggered, you say when triggered, time to pause. So what do we do when we're triggered? What is the best way to deal with that? Well, you know, some people have uh, the little mindful pause card on their phone or one guy put it on his dashboard. And it's like, okay, we can do it now together. Like think of something that recently triggered you. Maybe not the worst trigger of your life, but some kind of trigger to you. And then... If you close your mind, uh, your eyes, um, notice your body. Just for a moment, deep inside yourself, notice your body. Exhale to relax. Recognize your feelings. Feel the breath of your heart. Give compassion to yourself. Return to breath as refuge. When ready, return to life. Mm -hmm. So maybe just Go through this, noticing the body gives us, grounds us in the body, but also opens us to the felt sense, the physical sensations in our body. And just kind of, uh, not in a heady way, but in a felt sense way, feeling what is there. And then exhale, exhaling to relax. At the exhale activates the vagus nerve and the vagus tone, which is basically the relaxation response. Exhale allows us to relax. And then recognize our feelings, or hurt or sad or frustrated or ashamed. You know, just to not ruminating about it, but just tagging it. Oh, that's what's going on. And then it often helps me to feel the breath going through my heart. And then I feel, oh, there's a little tightness. So I I just feel it deeply. And then give compassion to yourself. You know, okay, it's a little bit like a mother holding a child or a father holding a child, giving us a little warmth and container and then returning to breath which is again the relaxation response and it's also connecting us to the greater stream of life and then let's say you did this little exercise in the foyer of the restroom or wherever you want to do it you know outside walking around the block and then to ask wow, am I ready to return to life? You know, let's say you were in a board meeting or a business meeting, which was, I don't know, went strange, and you excused yourself, went to the restroom, pulled out your card, and you did this for maybe two, three minutes, and then you ask yourself, 
wow, am I ready to re-engage? Or maybe mm-hmm. I do the card one more time. Right. Right. And that's, 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 that's I think, I think that um, it's very fearful to experience triggers and not have the tools to be able to deal with them. So that's why this is really so helpful for everybody. And um, I, you know, I, everyone should listen to this again and, and put it on a little card that you carry with you so that you know how to deal with this. Because if you're not afraid, if you don't panic when you have the trigger, it will go away a lot easier than if you go, oh, my God, here it comes again. I don't know what to do. This feels horrible. <laughs> so that's so powerful, Bradley. You know, in my first book, um, uh, Hard Work, The Path to Self-Compassion, there are a lot more. I make uh, mindful pauses for all kinds of different triggers, which are all a little different. So uh, you can just look it up, uh, maybe even on a Kindle or whatever, you know. It's, 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 uh, and uh, it goes a lot more into the mindful path than this book does. Okay. So what is the name of that book again? Can you please say that again? Yeah, it's called Heart Work. Heart Work, okay. Heart okay. Work, one word, the path to self-compassion. Okay. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you. That would be so valuable to my listeners who... Most people who listen to the show are um, have suffered from some kind of trauma, whether in childhood or adulthood, and they're, you know, looking for a lifeline. So I think that's um, that's really great if they have that book, if they have that card with them, that will help them, and they won't have to panic through it. So, um, is there anything we're finishing up? Is there anything that you wanted to leave us with? Any of any wisdom or um, advice, whatever, that you want to leave us with? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I was surprised when I was, you know, I was gone now for four weeks, which was a long time for some of my clients. And sure, people covering for me. But we have this meditation platform where we teach, for example, every morning from 7.30 to 8 and in the evenings at 7 and at 10 in the morning, and like one of my clients, um, she who's really coming from a very narcissistic family, and I was really worried about her while I was gone, and because a lot of turmoil in her life, and I said, you know, uh, how, 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 how did it go? You know, I was... I have been a bit worried. She says, you know, I've been fine because I have listened to the meditations. I've participated every morning from 7.30 to 8. And when I don't teach them, then Fred, who's amazing, teaches, come in 25 minutes and out. And I think meditation through our platform, mindfulheartprograms.org, or through wherever you want to go, you know, inside timer or whatever you do. Um, it's such a good complement to therapy. And I just, this client of mine reminded me of that. And she said, no, I was okay because I, I went into the meditations every morning and that got me through those four weeks. So I just yes. wanted to maybe Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you shared that. Uh meditation is so important really to all of us, to all of us. But what a great way to start the day. Um so your meditation club, can you say the link again to what that would be? Mindful Heart Programs with an S programs dot org and they're all free. And you can come oh, wow. and go at we make it really easy. There's a waiting room. That's our little security. But you don't have to register. You don't have to sign up. You come and go when you want. It's free. Uh, it's my community offering. And we have, I teach quite a bit, but we have also a few other great teachers. And 
it's just I can see like the 7.30 to 8 meditation, a lot of people just come and go, you know. <laughs> it's such a good support. And are these and they're guided meditations, you or the other uh-huh. teachers guide them through it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, what a great thing to know. Thank you so much for providing that for everyone. Well, we got to complete this show. <laughs> we did it. Oh, we got all the way through. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We got all the way through and we got to really talk about some amazing things. Um, so it was really great having you back. I was really looking forward to this. I knew we would uh, touch on some, you know, really kind of interesting topics. So, and we did, we absolutely did. So, um, so Radley, it's just been great. And thank you so much for coming back and being my guest today. And thank you. And you are an amazing interviewer and a, great clinician and yeah love to continue the discussion yes absolutely we should okay um have a wonderful day out in california yes it's it's only like uh eight nine ten well nine o'clock what is it like nine o'clock yeah oh yeah yeah, nine o'clock i have my uh my client now at nine so i have to say okay all right take care great great to talk to you bye-bye Bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.